Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Uh, lots to talk about, Dr. Ron. I'm sure you're, you're keeping busy there, and it seems like uh, you've been preoccupied with the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Absolutely. What's up yeah, with it that? <laughs> it is definitely, um, it's actually in many ways, it's fast-forwarded us into the modern era of medicine because we're, we're at a large medical group called Sutter Health, which you probably know being in the Bay Area. And we've been meaning to scale out telemedicine for a long time. And as a result of the pandemic, all of a sudden we went from zero to 60 in no time at all. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think every business, every industry is having to figure out different ways of, you know, kind of launching themselves. So yeah, it's been an interesting time. Do we have some benefits with telemedicine in terms of the interactions? And Oh, yeah. You know, the benefit actually has been, as much as I like live interactions, I've actually been able to get snapshots into people's homes and their lives. So, so literally, like last week, somebody was having breakfast while I was actually interviewing them um, for, for a visit, and I was seeing what they were eating. And you would have thought they would have put their best game face on, but that was not the case. So I made a couple of recommendations there. And then also a lot of posture evaluations. I've actually, actually had folks take them into their fridge or their pantry. So, so those have been the additional benefits is actually getting a snapshot of their home life, which you don't get to do when you're in a, you know, a sterile exam room. So. What's amazing to me is to find out that uh, business is slower. My, my friend works in urgent care facility. My sister's in the, in the medical scene. And it's like, yeah. Well, wait a second. All of a sudden, uh, people's stomachs aches aren't as bad, or they're they're going to be okay with that that uh, that sprained finger. It's kind of strange that um, we're recalibrating or, what healthy I'm is. Really, you're right, Brett. I'm worried about the people that have chest pain usually, or like you know heart disease. And like, what's happening? And we, I think we have a lot of pent up medical issues that are not getting taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I don't think it's going to be floodgates, but I think things are going to get busier really quick. But at the same time, Brett, I think that there are a lot of people. People that have issues that probably could be managed. I think people are thinking twice about coming in. In some ways, that's not a bad thing because maybe a lot of these things are resolving on their own. But we are worried about our chronic sick, ill people that probably need more immediate care. So, you know, we'll have to see sort of what walks through the door once this period's over. We're already transitioning back to elective operations and things are, I think, are going to start getting busier. Well, at Cultural Health Solutions, one of the best websites on the internet, Thanks. you're talking about some stuff that seems to be absent from the mainstream media blabber. And it's very interesting to me. And I'd like to focus the show on some of these things because all we're hearing about is make sure you wear your mask and and wash your hands. And there's a whole nother element to the disease process of of this thing that we're so scared about and that's knocking people down. And, you know, let's, let's get a little big picture here. Talk about that uh, article training for the covesity. Oh yeah. You called it covesity. Talk, talk about that term and, uh, did you already yeah. trademark it? Do you have t-shirts coming out, bumper stickers, <laughs> mugs? I don't know. I got a tattoo, so I'm, I'm pretty good at <laughs> this. So yeah, totally. No, I mean, basically at a very high level, Brett, I mean, what I'm telling people on talks, um, I give a lot of talks in Silicon Valley, I give a lot of talks to the community, and I'm telling people, we've got to get out of the vision and thinking that COVID is basically exclusively an infectious disease. 
we have to start looking at it as a lifestyle disease. So typically, you're right. The last few months, we've been obsessed with the what I call the external viral load. Like, is COVID going to get me? I tell people this is like a game of chase, basically. We've been sort of hiding from the enemy for this time. But at some point, we're going to have to re-enter the, re the real world. And many of us are going to be exposed to COVID-19. So now the game switches from catch me if you can to, okay, now you caught me. Am I going to live or am I going to die, right? Um, not to be that black and white. But, you know, we have to fortify our internal bodies now and not be obsessive about the external world because that creates a lot of panic and anxiety. I literally had a televideo visit with a couple of patients last week. And even though they're sheltered in at home, they're not even stepping outside into the backyard or to their streets because they have this vision that the virus is everywhere. And you can kind of imagine because when you see those heat maps, you know, those crazy heat maps that were coming out with these red circles widening all over the world. A lot of lay people think that the virus is literally everywhere, you know, so so I'm trying to take people out of that panic boat and saying, yes, you still got to wash your hands. You got to wear the mask. You got to do basic things. But now this is going to be a long haul here. So we've got to actually manage that internal load, because really, whether you survive and thrive, that's going to depend on how your immune system reacts to this thing. So so that training for the COVID-19, my approach is I tell people, and you know this better than anything, being an elite athlete yourself, um, is treat this like a half marathon or a 5K. This is an event that we need to train our bodies and minds for, because when we are unleashed back into civilization, we got to be ready for this thing. And also help me understand the the idea of the the viral load out there. Um, my my notion of the, the winter season and the common cold is that it's everywhere, right? Every door handle, every uh, gas pump that you touch, and you're going to catch a cold if you get run down. I tell my kids, it's sugar and sleep, man. Which one did you fall apart on? When, whenever they have a cold, that would be my comeback. Like, okay, let's talk about your last 24 hours. Um, is that an accurate notion that this stuff is uh, indeed easy to find and it lives on this surface for this long and that long, but you might not get it if you're strong and healthy or if you get exposed and someone sneezes on you, are you screwed no matter what? No, absolutely not. And that's why we have risk categories and criteria. I think a lot of the initial focus was on age, you know, looking at age and then it's kind of the common underlying things that you think about if you're immunocompromised, if you've got chronic health conditions, just like the flu, you're going to be more hit by this. But now what we're really finding with emerging data is, yes, those things still matter, but it is other more insidious things like having a little bit of extra fat around your belly, which is why I term the word obesity. Now, in the old days, if you had a couple of extra inches around your waist, maybe that elevates your risk of having a flu infection. But this thing is really different. And that's why you're seeing on the news just really scary things about young people in their 30s, 40s having severe infections worldwide. So that response, when your immune system overreacts to that, you know, handle that you touch that might have COVID-19 on it, when your immune system overreacts, it can really cause what's called that cytokine storm. It can cause so much damage to the internal body. And that can happen with any infection. With COVID-19, it's a little bit different than you know, with typical flus. So, so, so you're right. It all depends on your body, your mind in terms of how you're going to respond to this. And, you know, a lot of my patients tell me, is it, oh, my God, I'm age 50, I'm age 60. Does that mean this is a death sentence? But I tell them that, you know, I look at you, Brad, you're an amazing looking, I'm not going to 
say your age publicly unless you've been public about it, but <laughs> there we 55, go. baby. I'm 55. in the 55 to 59 division. So I'm, I'm always going to be <laughs> proud of my age as long as I'm competing you, you, and getting, <laughs> getting older is only making it easier. The, the standards go down. You can, you can relax a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. Love that. We but, know you know that. That, but you know, as we know, it's not really chronological age. It's really biological age. I mean, you're 55, but you look better than 98% of my 35 year old engineers who sit in front of the computer all day. They're eating all the crap. So literally, I'm more worried if they were exposed to COVID-19 versus somebody like you who does everything right. So I think instead of being fixated on, oh, my God, I'm 70, I'm 75, I'm whatever, it's like, let's try to fix that biological age issue by really attacking these inflammatory factors in the body. Well, that brings up a a knee-jerk question for me, which is, you know, this social distancing, a lot of people are getting sick of it. I feel like there's going to be like a revolt in society pretty soon where the, the skaters are going to go back to the skate park and w- whatever else is going to kind of, you know, we're going to, we're going to leak out of this uh, tremendous effort that the governor of, of California and the other states and the, the leaders are, are having us do, uh, yeah. especially because of the economic pressures and so forth. But um, what's, what's your take on that? We could, um, we could, we could, we could pause the recording if it's going to be like uh, <laughs> Dr. Ron's secret thing. This is all nonsense, but I'm wondering, if yeah. you're a sensitive, vulnerable person and there's a global pandemic, it's probably a great idea to isolate yourself uh, and, and so on and so forth. But a healthy individual, um, what, what kind of risk are we looking at? And is this uh, a bit of overkill or is this the way that we have to do it? Yeah, you know what? When it comes to public health issues like this, it is so hard to get it exactly right. I mean, if you overreact, people are going to criticize you, but nobody's going to know how many bodies you saved, right? I mean, the fact that you know, a lot of people are criticizing Governor Newsom right now, there's no back count saying that he might have saved thousands of lives. He might have saved my mother, my grandmother. He's never going to get credit for that, right? If you undercall this and underreact, then you get blamed like New York, like you didn't do enough. So this is a thankless situation. So when we turn the spigot back on, we send people out there, there's going to be a lot of unpredictable things that are happening. But I think we have to assume the worst. We have to be cautious. But, you know, um, there's going to be no right way to do this. But you're absolutely right that if you've got, if you're at the age, you've got immunocompromising conditions, you want to be extra, extra safe. If you're young and healthy, you don't want to be reckless because, as we know, I could be a carrier to my mom or somebody else that I'm exposed to in the clinic or in the grocery store. So I think we can start loosening the handles a little bit, but we still have to follow the basic precautions. And the businesses are going to be set up like that to make sure we've got distance precautions and things like that. You know, as parents, we're worried because our kids are going to be back in high school, you know, and there's no way all these rules are going to be, you know, enforced in a school type environment. But but like I said, that's why it comes back. There's so many different variables out there. We got to come back to our base, which is how do we take care of our body and mind better? So we're not going to really react to this unpredictable environment that we're living in. Uh, why do you think uh, it, it seems to be uh, discounted in the mainstream media commentary about this? Unless I'm, I'm trying not to pay much attention. I, I limit myself to like, you know, one article a day or something and then, then check out, know what I got to know and move on. But it seems to me there's this huge void and they're only looking at viral load instead of the other factors that you write about and what we'll talk about in a sec. Yeah, you know, the good news is since I wrote the first article about COVID a few weeks ago, now there is emergence happening where people are starting to treat this like it's heart disease or diabetes. So I think it's slowly starting to happen. 
But I think, Brad, the big challenge is, is even the mainstream medical community, the linkage between lifestyle and immunity is not something that was emphasized in medical training. Mm -hmm. So just knowing that, um, you know, emotional stress has such a significant impact on our immune system, that staying up late at night and checking out the latest COVID-19 <laughs> in the morning is going to impact my immune system if I'm not sleeping properly. But now what I'm doing in talks is, um, you know, we've been talking this talk for a long time, Brad, but now we're finding very specific data. So I'll give you one example, melatonin. And we all know this is a vampire hormone that lets us sleep at nighttime. And so a lot of people know that, okay, I shouldn't be looking at blue lights because it's not good for my sleep. But now we know that melatonin specifically has an impact on shutting down the inflammation that comes from COVID-19. It literally inhibits the exact enzyme. There's an alarm sensor inside our cells, and it's called NLRP3. It's called the inflammasome, and that's literally the sensor switch that turns up inflammation in our cells. And melatonin is like a garden hose. It tames down that alarm sensor. So now we're finding specific mechanisms. So literally, if you're up late at night looking at blue light, this is not no longer about long-term fatigue. We're actually compromising your immune system and the specific COVID-19 pathways. So I'm trying to highlight that specificity because in my work, I find that if I tell people, well, sleep's good for inflammation, it's good for overall health. Now we've got a disease here, which is not about 10-year heart disease risk. It's about 10-day, maybe three-month risk. So we've got to start making these changes right away. Dang, this is time for Dr. Rhonda Pounce. I mean, you've been talking your game for decades, trying so hard to change oh. lifestyles with your patients. And now it's like he's swooping in for the kill now. This is it. You can't eat that cereal anymore, my friend. You're going to get COVID. Okay, so just to just to, yeah. to dummy down for the, uh, yeah. the the dummy listener category, if if some dude sneezes on me when I'm when I'm getting groceries and I come home and 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 go to sleep and then do my aerobic activity the next day and eat healthy low insulin simulating foods and all that uh i am improving my odds markedly it, rather than rather than being screwed just because the virus has hit me markedly i mean when you look at the risk and conditions. It literally, and you're right, this happens to be my sweet spot, but literally the three conditions come down to diabetes, obesity, and high blood pressure. And these are really lifestyle-related conditions. Those are three major, major risk factors. So um, for example, the belly fat, I think a lot of people are now aware of. There's been a lot of science around when you've got elevated belly fat versus fat in other areas, that's the increased risk factor for heart disease and cancer. But the reason this is relevant to COVID-19 is because the belly fat releases the types of chemicals that cause your immune system to overreact. And that's really what we're trying to prevent with COVID-19. So, so yeah, all these mechanisms are really aligned right directly with what COVID-19 does. Yeah. Uh, so there's obesity, and then there's the, um, we call it the skinny fat, or yeah. you have other terms for that. And that's pretty much uh, a, a much larger segment of the population is vulnerable to this uh, condition where we're carrying too much visceral fat, even if we uh, look okay in our in our jogging clothes at the at the gym. And yeah. so let's let's um, take a take a breath a little bit from the obsession with the virus and talk about how to stave off this this belly fat, especially uh, as we age, because I know it seems to be easier to accumulate um, just from just from getting older. Uh, when I compare like my dietary habits to my son's, he eats anything in sight all, all day long and he ain't got no belly fat. So what's yeah. going on there and why, why, is it, um, why is it such a risk factor too? Yeah, I mean, so so if we step back for a second, so I don't keep using words like inflammation and viral load. So let's just step back for the listener and think about the fact that 
when the virus enters our body, so that's the external factor, right? And what we're trying to do is we want to tame our immune system. Now, we want our immune system to be a precision strike force where it's not going to cause any friendly fires. So we definitely want to bring down that viral load with our immune system, but we don't want it to shoot down our own cells. That's really what we're trying to do. And so when the way you want to think about this, there are these small chemicals called cytokines or chemical messengers or part of our immune system. And when you have an excess amount of cytokines, that's when the damage to your cell happens. But you want to produce some cytokines because that's going to keep the viral load suppressed. So what I'm telling people is, let's say today, hopefully I haven't had any COVID-19 viral load, but if I already have extra belly fat or if I'm eating processed foods, I'm causing cytokines to become inflamed. So if you think of that cell, we being in the Bay Area are very familiar with the concept of wildfires. So now we've got dry kindling and we've got flickering flames before we've even been infected by Mm COVID-19. So we have to make sure that we're not creating a flammable environment for the virus. And that flammable environment comes from extra belly fat. It comes from extra sugar, extra processed foods. Um, You mentioned, you know, obviously, you know, I've got teenage boys too, and they can eat anything they want. They don't put on any any belly fat, but that's because they're going through puberty. They're still growing vertically. A lot of the calories are going towards growth. We're done growing vertically, man. We're just going to keep growing outward, right? So (laughs) we have to be really careful about what we're sort of taking into the body. But um, the ethnic differences are very profound too, because in Asians and other cultures, um, it takes very little of that belly fat to really cause issues. In African-Americans, we are seeing devastating disease. And, and part of that is insulin resistance because there is high amounts of diabetes in the African-American population. But also in African-Americans, high blood pressure has much more significant risk factors for heart disease. And that angiotensin blood pressure mechanism in African-Americans is much more aggressive. So they're really becoming more susceptible. Nobody knows the exact mechanism. But again, these same risk factors for heart disease are getting amplified in the presence of COVID-19. So we've got to be really careful. Now, I got to tell you, once I gave these talks, I've had women and readers reach out to me saying, oh, my God, does that mean any belly fat is going to, you know, put me at risk? And I just want to be clear that I don't want people to become paranoid. It's not like everybody needs to have a six pack literally to stave off this disease. But some of us, even if we lose it eight to 10 pounds or a few inches off the belly, we can significantly lower inflammation. And some of the signs that you might have inflammatory belly fat can be seen in your labs, for example. If you've had a history of diabetes or elevated blood sugar, your belly fat is probably more inflammatory. If your cholesterol profile shows that you've had high triglycerides or low healthy cholesterol, your belly fat's probably more inflammatory. If you've had a condition which is really common called fatty liver, most likely that extra belly fat is inflammatory. Now, let's say you don't have any of those conditions and you're physically fit, you're eating healthy, but you've still got some extra fat around the belly it's probably not as inflammatory. So I don't want you to think that you've got to trim down every last inch because otherwise we're going to create that fear and paranoia around that. So I know I went off on that, but I just want to make that clear because a lot of people get really concerned about their all their mass around their belly. So, so besides uh, looking at our, um, our, our, our clothing size, our profile in the mirror, we can get some uh, blood work to uh, represent a, a relative risk. And I know that um, you like to talk about triglycerides, uh, HDL. You want your yeah. triglycerides under 100. The the main uh, the, the common notion we we see is under 150. So, um, are those kind of your your big ones? And in terms of priorities, if someone's looking at their blood work, 
Yeah. So, so definitely talk to your doctor. Those are standard labs you should be checking. Now, in some cases, especially if you've got the diabetes or other risk factors, there's a test called the C-reactive protein, HSC-reactive protein, which is a marker for inflammation. And I've had a lot of patients, even before COVID, that when they have insulin resistance and extra belly fat, their C-reactive proteins are really high. The minute we modify their diet and they lose a couple inches, that number drops down like a rock. So that might be something to check, but I don't check it in everyone. But in people that have those metabolic risks, the C-reactive protein can be really useful. Another one, too, that I see quite a bit of is just vitamin D deficiency. Because, you know, people that have extra belly fat or body fat, it acts like a pool which traps the vitamin D. So it's not actually releasing the bloodstream. It's not as biologically active. And vitamin D has profound impacts on immune system health. It can be a real immune system booster. So, you know, we want to make sure we're okay with that. And in a shelter-in environment, so this is something else I'm seeing, Brad, in my mm. population is winter hibernation. A lot of people stay indoors already. But usually by Jan, February, people are outdoors. But now people have been indoors for several months. And when they are checking their vitamin D levels, they're like single digit down to the 9, 10, 11 range. That is not good for optimal health. And vitamin D also does play a role with COVID-19 specifically in receptor functions. So it's all those things we want to be aware of. Now, a lot of people are very scared about going to the doctor's clinic. Many of my patients are overdue on blood tests, but all standard clinics are doing very safe distance precautions. Like in our labs, it's safer to get your blood drawn than to pick up, you know, apples at the grocery store right now. So, so you know, get you got to make sure you're getting your numbers checked regularly during this time. Don't just let it go to waste, basically. And one number that people are not getting paying attention to is their waistline because everyone's living and working from home. So people are people are just living in pajamas and stretchy pants. So they don't realize that the waistline is going up. <laughs> with a home. refrigerator uh, within <laughs> 17 feet of their workspace exactly. for the first time ever. <laughs> right. It's a big problem. Yeah. Well, the vitamin D, by far the best source of it is sunlight. And you're talking about how now we're challenged. It sounds like um, uh, Los Angeles Mayor Garcetti did not consult with you when he closed the beaches and hiking trails. And I was sort of, again, knee-jerk, not knowing the science or anything. It, it seemed like it, we should be encouraged to get outdoors and, and get more sunlight and get more fresh air and open space to boost health, boost immunity. Um, but again, I think we're maybe that... Um, you know, that, that overreaction or that, uh, that, that conservative approach here is yeah. maybe something to be revisited now, especially when now we can make a lot of vitamin D, it's getting warm. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, you know, we don't have to go to a crowded beach to get it, as you know. You know, I can be <laughs> right. my backyard with my shirt off and get it, right? Like I said, some of my patients are not even walking down the street because they're afraid of virus. But I'm like, in the meantime, your vitamin D levels are plummeting, you know, and you're not getting any physical activity. And like I said, when you transition back to work or in the outside world, you are not going to be in shape for the COVID-19. You know, that's what I'm really concerned about. So, so if we've been doing social distancing here, uh, probably everywhere you're listening to the show, you're subject to this around the world. And um, it's been going on now for a couple months. Uh, what are these, uh, what, what are these new cases representing? How are people still getting taken down if the risk has been so tremendously diminished since the NBA basketball season, when you're going to Oracle arena with 17,000 people and then right. touching how many door handles and uh, urinal stalls and whatever else. Yep, yep, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the thing is, the social distancing was really done as an accommodation to the healthcare system. So we would not be overwhelmed with, you know, mounds of cases, volumes of cases that are going to overwhelm the system. 
But really, social distancing, uh, you know, wasn't really done to necessarily eradicate the disease itself. The virus has its own lifeline, unfortunately. So this is more of a long-term process. But if we can spread that out more evenly so we're not overwhelming hospitals in the healthcare system, then we can sort of manage it more kind of like we manage the flu rather than the tremendous spikes that we saw in Italy and other parts of the world. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's basically what we're going to see. But like I said, as we open things up, you're right. I mean, everyone's trying to predict where are the spikes going to happen. It's very tough to tell, but we just have to be ready for anything at this point, you know? So, you know, we got to take better care of ourselves. But luckily, at least here in California, we do have capacity. I mean, that's what we've worked towards. So if we see something happen, we've got the you know capacity to handle that volume. And we hope that will happen in other parts of the country as well, too. So how are people getting it right now when there's so much precaution and social distancing going on? Is it still out there on the, yeah. uh, on the handle, on the shopping cart that you wiped off, but you only spent five seconds instead of 12 and then you're that's vulnerable exactly and you right. get hit? That's exactly right. Because, you know, again, this is imperfect, right? Because as much as there are people, I'll be honest with you, I mean, now that people are starting to hang out at parks and stuff, it's interesting. Even when I've gone out to our hiking trails, we've got a hiking trail back here. People still don't have a good sense of what six feet is. I rarely see people standing or walking six feet apart. They really don't. And six feet is actually the minimum. When you look at epidemiology studies, probably more like eight to 10 feet. So that's the thing is, is the longer people go without getting issues, they can start getting a bit lackadaisical on this stuff. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to see some people at the parks, which is fine. We, like we said, we want to get people out there. But, you know, the, the, the level of comfort sometimes can be a little bit too close. And then all of a sudden, you see a resurgence of these things. So that's where we have to be really careful. So, yes, to answer your question, there is virus still out there. It hasn't been eradicated. And it just takes, literally, as you know, in a lot of these cases, it could take one person walking into a bar. And all of a sudden, you have 20, 25 people or in some public place, you know, because it's so incredibly contagious. That's really what's different about this. Yeah. And we have some uh, unknowing, it's potential to be an unknowing carrier because you have no symptoms that maybe this extends out for weeks where you're carrying it around and you feel fine? Or what's, is there a time frame there right. that people know? I mean, that, that's the key thing is you can be an asymptomatic carrier for a few weeks, right? A couple of weeks until your immune system suppresses it. And, you know, that's why kids, I mean, thank God, you know, knock on wood, thank God our young kids are not affected, you know, mm -hmm. like um, other types of infections. But unfortunately, they can be little snotty carriers of this or unsnotty. They can be perfectly fine and still carry this. So, so I think that's really what makes this such a difficult condition. And as we know, and I, I can't say that I would have been the same, but teenagers, you know, the younger ones, um, they do feel more, you know, invincible with this. So they feel like it's not a big deal. You know, at that age, it's tough to have, expect that a teenager is going to be completely conscientious and manage public health the way we'd expect them to. So, so that's why there's still a lot of potential for spread that we have to be aware of. And so how do you envision the future? If, if you were uh, named governor tomorrow, um, <laughs> what kind of steps would you take and, you know, predictions uh, would you make about how things are going to play out? Are the kids going to go back to college next fall? Um, are we going to lock down the, uh, <laughs> not to sound crass, but are, you know, are we going to lock down uh, the, the, those with high blood pressure, obesity, and, um, and the, the risk factors for their own safety and so forth? 
Yeah, this is this is a tough question. I mean, I, I'm glad I'm not the governor. I'll tell you that first of all. But but the thing is, the more time that goes by, the good news is we are getting more data back now too. So we are able to make more informed decisions. As you know, the economy just cannot go along at this rate anymore. I mean, the economy is tanking right now. So we, you know, we, that's why we are transitioning back selectively to certain businesses. And all you can do is gradually release the pressure valve and then measure, release the pressure valve and measure, and hopefully you have some sort of you know gradual. Return turn back to some semblance of normalcy. The blood works and the antibody tests are still on that gray zone. Um, we don't know how to make any determinations based on this. And this is what's happening is in the beginning, we were probably too slow. We were too slow with diagnostic tests, but now we've kind of gone the other way where all types of tests are being released. We don't know what the accuracy or the implications of that is, but as that data gets better and testing becomes more readily accessible and reliable, I think Brad will be able to make informed, more informed decisions over the next few months in terms of the right transition back to some semblance of normalcy. Keeping you busy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you probably, uh, I don't know. Did you ever kind of uh, imagine this or receive training in, in, in medicine uh, for the, the, the idea that we could have a pandemic someday? I mean, we've had them in the past. Yeah, we write about pandemics, but no, we did not receive any specific pandemic type training. Some people have done fellowships, obviously, in areas where that's covered. But yeah, most of us coming out of this, I mean, we know how to take care of ill people. You know, we know how to take care of sick people with severe lung infections. But but the amount of scale and intensity of this disease, it, this has taken everyone by surprise. So it's, it's quite a shocker. And, you know, one other thing I, I know I've talked a lot about immune system function. But the other thing, too, which will be close to your heart, literally, is this concept of aerobic fitness is more important than ever because, you know, what I'm really teaching to folks right now is, you know, this infection, a primary target study, as you know, is the lungs. And literally when it hits the lungs, when you talk to people that have gone through this, they literally describe this as either being dragged underwater or being dropped on top of Everest and being asked to run a marathon. I mean, you are feeling suffocated and breathless when you get this infection. And it's because of that mass inflammation that happens in the lungs, all this fluid accumulates. So rather than feel like a victim of that, because I know it's a scary image, I tell people, this is where you have to train your aerobic system. Because if your aerobic system is not trained, literally what happens is the minute you start getting a little bit shorter breath, your body releases inflammation and cytokines like you wouldn't believe. Because Brad, the greatest threat mm. to our physical body is if I were to put a bag over your head and I made you stop breathing, right? Automatically, you're going to get panicked. So I got to tell you one hack I've been teaching people. People always complain about having to put the N95 or the medical mask on. They're like, I don't want to run with the mask on. I'm like, no, run with the mask on because it's almost like doing a mild version of high altitude training. And I've actually had many of my patients who have no mask tolerance at all now they can walk through the grocery store. They can go for a hike or a light jog. And I'm saying, you know, what you're actually doing is you're actually elevating your RBC mass and you're actually improving your aerobic performance. And that's a good thing because if this infection hits your lungs a little bit, your body's going to be in better shape to actually manage that. So now people are very compelled to do aerobic in a proper way. I mean, actually, yeah, I was going to bring it with me. I've had a high altitude training mask for a long time because I've always been aerobically challenged. And that was a game changer for me was just to use that mask and do hardcore cardio or do longer things. And now that's coming in handy. I can run in the neighborhood. I don't look like a freak anymore. People are like, wow, where'd you get that? You know, now you can't find them on Amazon. They're all sold out. You can't find a single high altitude training mask at all. But but this is one opportunity for us to really build up that aerobic base. And that's that's your sweet spot. I mean, I've learned a lot from you about aerobic training. And I think it's really coming in handy during this time. 
oh my gosh, that's funny. We probably had the very earliest versions of altitude training simulators in high school. We bought these backpack things and they were pretty cumbersome and they filled with these uh, rock chemicals and the mass came in and so you breathed it and it supposedly extracted enough oxygen. So it was like training at um, 7,500 feet elevation. And we'd put those things on and just suffer. And you know, you'd be (laughs) jogging down the street with a very low intensity workout, low impact, but it was just brutal. And you wanted to rip that thing off and- Oh man, I didn't yeah, know. Crazy. I didn't know they had uh, simple ones nowadays. Yeah, I, I don't think it's as intense as what yours is. I think mine's is kind of a woodsy version compared to what you're wearing, but it still makes a big, big difference. And you know, most of us really. Uh, so, so the other part, you know, when we talk about fitness, obviously there's aerobic aspect, but I'm really trying to teach people how to breathe better. The breathing makes a big, big difference because as we get more anxious. We're all breathing in the upper lung zones right now. And many people have never even touched or massaged that diaphragm before, that diaphragmatic breathing, either at rest or when they exercise. So just getting people to breathe more normally through emotional stress and even when they exercise, it's a huge lesson. You know, and some of my patients that I'm following up with that are doing some of this stuff, they've been running forever. And now they're like, oh, my God, I feel like a different person because now I'm able to engage the diaphragm mm. and increase that lung zone circulation. So, so you know, again, I'm, I'm always I try to be an optimist through this. I think people are learning techniques and lessons or taking their exercise to a level that they've never have been before, which will not only serve them well in this pandemic environment, it's going to serve them well for the rest of their life because this is something we all want to be able to do. I love it. Optimism about the COVID-19. And I, I did a show talking about, you know, trying to look at the positive aspects of this. We've, we've heard enough complaining and fear and anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, I'm reporting like, I'm basically, my, my biggest challenge right now is I'm getting overtrained because I have so many implements and, and stretch tubes and mini bands and straps and my pull-up bar and my, my deadlift bar. It's always there available for me because I'm at home and yeah. I'm like overdoing it. I got to sit back and just, you know, instead I'm of taking a break, way. you know. <laughs> You're so right. But yeah. you know, that's another, that's been another side benefit is, is you probably have too, is I have a lot of patients that are completely dependent on gyms. Like they cannot lift anything <laughs> unless it's attached to 45 on place. Yeah. And now I'm finally telling them, let's work on some functional strength. So you're right. I've been prescribing bands, um, more plyometrics, because as you know, when it comes to aging, it's not how much you can necessarily deadlift. It's really more about power. It's like, how functional are you? Mm-hmm. How fast can you move your own body weight? And these are concepts a lot of my patients have never been familiar with. And now that they're being able to do this, they feel amazing. They're like, I've got an extra spring in my step now. Now I feel bad because I think gyms probably will not be as busy just because of worries about bar load, but also because people are becoming more independent and realizing that fitness is something that can be integrated into their bedroom, into their office, into the parking lot. And that's also a message you and I have been preaching all along is this should not be in a weekend warrior pursuit or something you just do for 30 minutes on elliptical, then you sit for 12 hours at a time. But that's a great lesson. I'm seeing people walking in the neighborhood. I, I didn't know they lived down the street from me. Like people are coming out of the woodwork <laughs> right now. So, so I love seeing that overall physical activity in most cases going up. I think that's a good thing for everyone. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this concept of micro workouts, and I'm I'm calling it the greatest breakthrough in the fitness industry in decades. Uh, the idea that you know you just haul off a set of pull ups and it takes you one minute, or do some mini bands up and down the hall, and then go back to work. And yeah. it seems to me, especially at my age and trying to recover, you know, when I go do those prolonged strenuous workouts at a gym or, or doing it myself, um, there's a recovery aspect. 
there's a risk of uh, overdoing it. And then there's that uh, compensation theory, they call it, where because I did my kick-ass 6 a.m. spinning class, I'm going to be more lazy throughout the day. So I feel like this is a way to kind of override a lot of the risks and drawbacks, uh, the, the, the secret, un, un, untold secrets of the fitness industry, that even those people that get in there and put their butt on the seat at 6 a.m., there's all kinds of other risk factors, even yeah. directly associated with that, especially when it's too strenuous. That's so true. And, you know, one way I've been kind of teaching people about this is so, you know, when I basically wrote my recent blog post, I've been teaching people, how do you work in positions that are different than what you're working already? Like literally I've got, you know, I love the word micro workouts or some people call this exercise snacking, you know, where you're just snacking <laughs> exercise throughout the day. So I literally am teaching people, you need to develop your own exercise pantry and you need to have a list of 15 or 20 different exercises that you can do while you're working. Like um, focus on your target areas. For me, it's hamstrings and hips. Those tighten up a lot. Mm. So, you know, even with, with my stand-up workstation, I often have my leg up on an elevated surface. So my, my hamstrings are getting loose. I'll open up my hips while I'm taking calls. And my goal is usually in the evenings, I go for like a five or six mile hike with a couple of buddies where we're, we've got a whole routine where we're socially distanced. And if I do this right, I should not be sore by the end of the workday. I shouldn't feel like a robot. I should feel like I'm pretty much warmed up and I can go for a run or a hike with no problems at all. And that's been a big thing because most of my patients, they're sitting all day, then they get to the gym and they're already sore and stiff and they're just a <laughs> better for injury, right? But you want to keep those joints lubed. You want to keep that circulation moving throughout the day while you're getting work done. And then if you want to go after a sprint or something, you're already ready to do that. And I think that's a game changer for me and many of my patients are really enjoying that sort of fitness. Sitting in a car for most people has been a waste of time for them. They're realizing that, wow, I just spent so much time in traffic. And now I'm telling people instead of turning on your car's engine, turn on your mitochondrial engine, right? Get that mitochondria moving instead and get that energy starting first thing in the morning, you know? So are you spending uh, a good portion of your time in stand-up like we can see on the video? Or do you go back and forth? Or what's your personal setup like? Yeah, I'm spending a lot of my time standing, but I do go in, uh, you know, within sitting positions. I alternate. I've got an exercise ball. I've actually now got my hip mobility to such a great level that I can sit in kind of a meditation lotus position with my legs crossed with a laptop in front of me. So, And believe me, I was like, I had the stiffest hips and hamstrings, but now I can do that stuff. But yeah, I've got all types of fun stuff I do. So so I, I kind of put out this ebook, which is the COVID survival guide. It's a free resource and I'll give you the link at the end. But in the very back of it, resources i've got about six or seven of my favorite positions to work in and i got my boys in the same thing i'm torturing them really wow. and, and we're doing all types of positions so right now you know i'm standing here but often what i'll do i'm going to step back here but i don't ever see it but normally i'll have my thigh kind of like a pigeon position and it's kind of folded in and on a surface so it really opens up my hip while i'm sort of checking emails and stuff so there's a lot of cool things that you can do basically so yeah i'm doing that right now on a, on a chair because I, nice. I can't i can't just stand the whole time so yes uh we're referencing our our friend katie bowman from primal cons where she she made the distinction that it's not just standing up and and getting into that, but having variation throughout the work throughout the workday. So, so you're standing. You're allowed to go sit again. You're allowed to stand. You're allowed to put your leg up, and those kind of things are uh, the big picture is, is movement variation throughout the day. Yeah, and you know, back to that same word cytokine. Sorry to interrupt, but in, in studies, you see that usually on average, forty to forty five minutes of prolonged sitting 
that's what can cause increased cytokine release. So again, we're causing more of that flammable cytokine release when we're sitting for that period of time. And it's some of the same cytokines that are released that we see in the COVID-19 cytokine storm. So something to really keep in mind. Uh, so you're putting up the number 40 to 45 minutes is the, um, the checkpoint. You better set an alarm. It's a good checkpoint, yeah. But I'll tell you, it's personalized too, Brad, because what we've seen in some limited studies is individuals that are really physically fit and aerobically fit, they, they have more tolerance to sitting longer. It probably makes sense because their mitochondria is burning fuel while they're even at rest. People that are more metabolically diseased and sedentary by nature, they're overweight, they have to do it more often, actually. So I kind of customize it. So, yeah, somebody like you, I've seen the, you know, the, the records that you're breaking in the, in the high jumping world and the sprinting world. You could probably get away on the higher end of that spectrum. But my patients that are severely insulin resistant and inflamed, they need to probably get moving every 30 to 40 minutes. But, yeah, 45 minutes is probably about the average for most individuals. Uh, and so get moving. If you can uh, encourage your uh, your patients to move for even a couple minutes, uh, are you satisfied or do you have a prescription that they, they need to get up and do some walking? So this, or- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the minimum is actually two to three minutes. And actually, for those that can do it, even they've shown that even a, a very high intensity sprint, skipping rope, doing burpees for even one to two minutes can still have some benefit there if you're able to do that. If you're not able to do something at high intensity, then yeah, minimum three to five minutes every 40, 45 minutes, that'd be a good rule of thumb. And it's not like you have to stop working, right? Again, if you're immersed in work, you can be doing a lot of these things while you're looking at the screen just to sort of change things up. But, you know, ideally, if you can get away and take a little bit more of a brisk walk and things, that would be probably the preferred way to do it. So you're working with these extremely high-performing Silicon Valley, highly trained uh, workers at the world's leading tech companies. And I'm wondering, you know, if this message is going to go over anywhere, it would seem that these people be the most receptive because of the, you know, the high education intelligence level and the drive to perform. Uh, but I, I've seen when I was working in Silicon Valley, you know, that, that drive and that, you know, uh, obsession with, with tech and getting your brain just locked in for hours and hours on end. I'm wondering, you know, how that battle is going where you're encouraging people to get up every 30 to 40 minutes. Hopefully the leadership's on board. We know a lot of these prominent uh, business oh, yeah. leaders are super yeah. good about balanced living and uh, Jack Dorsey walking five miles every day to work and doing the cold plunges and all that. But in, in general, how is it going over with your, your average Silicon Valley tech worker? I would say the average Silicon Valley tech worker, when they have the right information in hand, they've been more motivated and engaged than ever. I mean, I think it's an imperfect storm. And first of all, having a disease out there that can literally kill us today, right? Versus heart disease or diabetes, which we always keep pushing off as being a long-term event. So number one, I don't like to motivate people by fear, but the fear is there. But number two, now there is that flexibility. Like I said, many of my patients here in Silicon Valley, they spend an average of 45 minutes to an hour each way in a car, right? They're stuck on the 101 or whatever freeway. Oh, and now people, if you're not familiar with Silicon Valley, let me tell you, my commute down there when I, when I stayed over with Sean and Angelique was like 11 miles or 12 miles and it took an hour. And I was like, I've run this fast. (laughs) You know, (laughs) what the heck? Forget about biking. If you can beat your commute to work on a bike, maybe you should take the bike. But if you can beat it running, oh, mercy, that better be an awesome job, huh? 
<laughs> right. But yeah, to your point, now they have this unique opportunity to have morning exercise. And I've always encouraged them, like even when you get to your high tech campus, try to walk for 20 minutes before you step in. Some will listen, some don't. But now I'm like, there is no excuse for not getting some physical activity in the morning. And as you know, with lifestyle changes, if you can even start half your day, if you can start the morning in the right frame of mind, eat the right breakfast or don't eat the right breakfast and fast, mm. maybe do a fasted 20 minute walk. Already, these employees are feeling energy that they've never felt before in the first part wow. of the day. And that kind of propels them into healthier habits throughout the day. They want more. They're like, okay, how do I keep this going? So my hope, I hope once they get back into the real world and the transition back in office space, they're going to remember that and they're going to try to incorporate some of that. Maybe, you know what, I'll go to bed earlier. I'll get a little bit earlier. And I still want to get that walk in before I jump in the car and drive to work or I'll do it when I get to my corporate campus. So I'm pretty hopeful. You know, again, I'm an eternal optimist, but I think if people can feel what it feels like to be healthy for the first time and realize that, you know what, this thing, my brain is actually working better. It's on fire. I'm more creative. You know, I don't need to be putting every single second of my day into productivity. I need to do some of these things. I think I'm seeing some great change. I've literally had patients tell me that this is the healthiest they've ever felt just because they're not spending <laughs> time in yeah. cars or in unnecessary meetings. So I think the whole work environment is going to change long term. Mm. Now, I think companies oh, yeah. also are going to be less dogmatic about you have to come in to work every single day. I think managers are realizing rather than hovering over employees, it's all about outcomes. Like by the end of the week, did you get these three or four things done? I don't care how you got it done, just get it done. And then we figure out where's health going to be fit into rather than eight to five, nine to six work days where you're just sitting there and dragging on. So, so I think this is a great time. Hopefully we'll keep those lessons in mind as we go forward. Oh my gosh, that would be so great to see that mass transition coming. And of course, I'm a self-employed person and I know, you know, my level of productivity when I'm able to, you know, create the optimal environment and uh, put my workouts into place. And if I'm, if I'm tired, I take a nap and all those great things that sometimes aren't supported in the corporate workplace. But now I, I would imagine a lot of people are getting, getting a lot of stuff done and, and being shining stars in their management oh, yeah. scenario because their oh. home focus and instead of sitting in a bloody freeway. Yeah, and I have so many execs, you know, they spend so much time on the road just flying. They're flying internationally. Yeah, right. Now, Let's rethink some of that, huh? Yeah, rethink a lot of that. And now they're reconnected to their families, which in most cases is a good thing. A lot of them are spending more time with their kids or wives, and their kids needed that time with dad or mom or whatever. So, yeah, it's interesting how a lot of these things are, you know, I think in moving in a direction where it's creating more connection and more optimal health. And hopefully that's going to move forward even beyond the pandemic. Listeners, you know why I got this guy on now. What an optimist. I love it, man. All these good things. I mean, sorry, um, apologies to the airlines and those those business class tickets where these guys are flying around. Uh, my, my friend Sven, he has the record. He flew to New Zealand from, uh, from San Francisco, 13-hour flight. Uh, sat in a really long all-day meeting for 13 hours and then flew back immediately without even oh, staying oh, in a hotel. Yeah. So that's like the all-time business travel <laughs> business travel great. record. Uh, so yeah, great stuff, man. It's thumbs up and into a, a beautiful new future once we once we get this stuff handled. Oh, yeah. one question. So you said in, in around the 40 to 45 minute mark, we start to produce these inflammatory cytokines due to sitting. Uh, why is that? It's a good question. So what is the actual reason for that to happen? And, you know, again, a lot of times we look at things through an evolutionary lens. So, um, you know, sitting or being immobile for prolonged periods, especially while we're emotionally stressed, 
is probably a conflicting message that we're sending to the body. If I'm sitting here looking at messages about whether COVID-19 is going to kill me and I'm sitting and I'm not moving, like my body's in danger mode without moving, that's probably going to elevate that trigger. But also metabolically speaking, when you've got extra body fat storage around the belly fat, um, you know, just that inactivity, triglyceride levels, glucose levels, everything goes up. So apart from even cytokines, Putting that aside, glucose levels go up, triglycerides go up, blood fats go up, and those all cause direct inflammation to happen too. So studies show that people who are more regularly active, their glucose levels, average glucose numbers are better, their inflammation markers are better, their um, you know, their all the numbers, lipids um, get better as well too. And that's the other thing too is I'm recommending a lot of my patients if they're not going in to see their doctor, they have to monitor themselves better, like check those glucose you know levels. Put on a continuous glucose monitor if you have to. Check your blood pressures. Check your waistline. Be very number centric because otherwise, you know, health can slip through the cracks really easily. Love it. So our first assignment is to go over to culturalhealthsolutions.com and download that that training for covesity. Get our <laughs> immune system in shape to to battle the virus and then uh, carry on from there, huh? Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be a good first step. Knowledge is power. Yep. Dr. Ron Sinha, thank you so much. Author of The South Asian Health Solution. We got to give a plug to that book too. Keep doing that great work in Silicon Valley. I appreciate you spending time with us and uh, setting us straight with that, that big picture, especially so well explained in the article about the viral load versus the cytokine load and how our, you know, our body kind of, uh, I guess, basically attacks itself when you're not sharp. And that's when you get taken down with the fluid in the lungs and all the bad stories. Exactly. That's right. Luckily, this is a disease that we have more control than we think we do. So, mm. and, and then the nice thing is we have champions like yourself, I mean, that already have the template and the content and information out there. But now we're just, I tell people, because when I do this work, a lot of people reply back to me. They're like, well, we've been talking about this for 20, 30 years, but now we're putting a different spin on it, right? Now we're playing the pandemic tune version of this, you know, the Pandora pandemic track, basically. So, you know, it takes different ways to hit people in different, you know, areas. But this is the first time that our entire world is concerned about the exact same health condition. So I think it's a unique opportunity for us to really engage people, our community, and really make the right choices. So, And geez, if we're just, if we're just jumping in now or want the quick takeaway, you're correlating aerobic fitness with your ability to resist this disease straight up. You absolutely got, nailed it. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Let's look for Dr. Ron at uh, uh, De Anza Park or wherever you can go hiking out there. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I have noticed, and I, I said this on my show too, like one of, the, one of the positive aspects is I noticed way more people on my little trails uh, where I'm exercising than I did before this. Right. And it's really cool because people have to get out of the house, I guess. And Absolutely. so, um, you know, and dogs are loving it too, by the way, dogs are getting fitter. Oh, the dogs. <laughs> yeah. The dogs are in heaven and they have all the, all the attention at home now, instead of everyone bailing out yeah. in the morning, <laughs> Billy, I'm really sorry about the high school track season. My, my apologies uh, uh, to all you guys out there, especially yeah. the seniors, but, uh, hopefully some of these kids are keeping in shape to do some surprising next year. Right. That's exactly right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dr. Ron, it's always great. Thank you hey, so pleasure. much. Uh, hey, we go much. find you at culturalhealthsolutions.com and any, anywhere else. You know, that's the main thing. I'm actually very active on Instagram as well. You can find me at RonestinaMD. So I'm putting a lot of practical lifestyle tips and a lot of cutting edge science around COVID-19 and health in general. So, yep, you look out for me and reach out to me if you have any questions. R-O-N-E-S-H-S-I-N-H-A-M-D. Go find it, people. <laughs> Good Thank stuff. Thank you for listening. Da-da-da-da. Thanks, Brad. <laughs>
Hey there, Primal Blueprint listeners. Did you know that Primal Kitchen Collagen Peptides help support hair, skin, and nails? Well, we offer a variety of collagen products to suit everyone's palate, from unflavored to mango pineapple or golden turmeric to our keto matcha or chai tea collagen latte mixes and much more. Visit us at primalkitchen.com and start fueling your day with collagen peptides. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the Primal Path and want to help others live primally too, then visit PrimalHealthCoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit PrimalHealthCoach.com today to learn more.